When I first moved here permanently to Manila with Cindy in 2005 from Texas, I experienced a volcanic eruption, an earthquake, and a typhoon all in one year. I jokingly commented to my wife, I think we need to return back to Texas quickly or else we're going to die here. At least in North Texas, where I'm from, we only have one natural disaster, and that's death by tornado. Here in the Philippines, there are three ways to die. Then we began to discuss about the safest place in the world to live. Canada was brought up, and I said, you can die of cold in Canada. Amazon Brazil was brought up, but you can die of tropical diseases there. We even talked about Africa, but you can die from the extreme heat. So, of course, out of curiosity, I googled safest place in the world. And interestingly, according to an actuarial study for that year, the safest place in the world was right here in the Philippines, in Palawan, of all places. Palawan has no active volcanoes, no active fault lines, no deep trenches around the area. Its foundation was on continental rocks extending 30 kilometers below the surface of the earth. And it was not made of volcanic debris. And most of all, the typhoons would swing north or northwest away from Palawan whenever it hits the Philippines. So I told Cindy, maybe we should move to Palawan, the safest place in the world. But she retorted, but they still have crazy jeepney drivers over there, and you can die by jeepney in Palawan. The question is often asked, where is the safest place in the world? And the answer is, the safest place in the world is in the protective hands of our Heavenly Father. In the Scriptures, God is presented as one who protects with the ability to care for our physical protection and life. Look what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 91, verses 1 to 4. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You know, when we talk about God's protection, it should not only be in reference to His protection of our physical bodies, but also in reference to where our soul, our hearts, can also find rest and refuge. Because it is when both our bodies and our souls are safe and protected, when we are able to find peace and settlement in our hearts during challenging times, is when we can feel that we are protected. And that's why we can say that wherever we are geographically, or in whatever situation we may be in, that being in the protective hands of God is the best place because there our soul can find refuge. You see, divine protection is not the absence of problems. It's not the absence of challenges or the lack of physical threats. Divine protection is knowing that our God provides a refuge for our tired, scared, and weary souls. As we continue our study in the book of Joshua, I want us to focus on where the soul finds refuge so that we can proclaim that the safest place in the entire world is anywhere where we are in the hands of God. It is in this truth 
that you will have peace in your hearts and can live with courage through the crucibles of your life. So turn with me in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20 as we study chapters 20 and 21, continuing our sermon series entitled Courage in the Crucible. And as you're turning to Joshua chapter 20, remember that Joshua, along with the leaders of Israel, under God's direction, had divided the promised land among the 12 tribes of Israel, as we talked about last week. However, there were still two special land designations that the Lord God wanted, the designation of the cities of refuge and the cities for the priestly tribe of Levi. It is from these two special land designation that we want to draw out our biblical principles as we get a glimpse into the heart of God for why being in God's protective hands is really where our soul finds a refuge. Look with me at Joshua chapter 20. I read from verses 1 to 3. The Lord also spoke to Joshua saying, Speak to the children of Israel saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. The Lord told Joshua to designate six cities of refuge where a person who accidentally kills someone else could go for protection and sanctuary. You see, in the ancient world, blood revenge was widely practiced. The moment a person was killed intentionally or by accident, his nearest relative took on the responsibility for exacting vengeance. And it would often last for many generations. And you see this sometimes even played out in the Middle East or in other places in the world where you have the so-called spiral of violence or revenge killings. So for those who committed accidental manslaughter, he or she could go to one of these six cities of refuge, but he had to hurry to the nearest one without delay, lest the other family find him first. That's why in those times, the roads leading to these cities were kept in excellent conditions, and the crossroads were well marked with signposts reading, Places of Refuge, Refuge. These cities of refuge must be so important that they are mentioned three more times in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 21, in Numbers chapter 35, and in Deuteronomy chapter 19. You see, my friends, God sets up these cities of refuge so that in a time of a person's greatest need, where he has committed a horrible accident or are part of a tragic mistake, he or she would find a place of sanctuary a place of protection, a place of refuge, a place where he didn't have to run or fear for his life for the rest of his life. He would find a place of salvation. You see, the cities of refuge were places where murderers, which they were, were accepted and judgment was not initially placed on them. In these cities, they found sanctuary and protection from those who were out there to do them harm we see a glimpse into the heart of God that He would even think to provide a place of sanctuary for those who have made terrible mistakes. You see, we can find a place of refuge in God's protective hands because number one, in Him is a place of salvation for people who make mistakes. A place of salvation 
for people who make mistakes. You know, sometimes we have the notion that God will only protect and provide sanctuary and salvation for people who are holy, righteous, or living a wonderful Christian life, intimately close to Him. But that's simply not the case. God welcomes us all, providing a place of protection and salvation for those who have made terrible mistakes. God specifically sets up cities in the promised land for people who make mistakes in their life to provide a place of protection and salvation. This is the heart of God. And this truth should be something that settles our hearts because we all have sinned. We've all made mistakes, some terrible ones. Our hearts are troubled when we don't recognize that in the Lord we can find salvation and sanctuary even what we have messed up in life. As Andy Cook tells it, Arthur Conan Doyle, the ingenious creator of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, once found great humor in a practical joke he played on 12 famous friends. Each of these 12 men were virtuous and highly respected in the community. For the joke, Doyle sent every one of them the same telegram. Depart at once. All is discovered. Within 24 hours, the dozen men of noble reputation had taken a trip out of the country, thinking that their worst secrets had been revealed. Indeed, we are all sinners. But rest assured, whatever you have done, you can come to the Lord to find a safe haven. You don't have to run from your sins anymore. There is salvation for sinners, Jesus came to save. Because Jesus is God, Jesus reveals the heart of God. So when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, remember that the sinful, wayward son is welcomed back into the protective home of his father as one who has made many mistakes in his life. The father didn't say for son, you need to get your life in order and do this and this and this before you are welcomed back. The Bible tells us immediately the son is welcomed back and accepted to live under the protective care of his loving father. God's protective care is not exclusive for perfect people, of which there are none. His care is for people who have made mistakes to find sanctuary and salvation and rest from running from their sins, past lives, or the mistakes they have made. So my friends, I don't know what you've done, but if you're tired of running and feel like you are all alone because of what you've done, because of life's decisions, remember you can always return to the Lord and find safety and protection under the shelter of His proverbial wings through salvation in Jesus. Now, when a man arrives at one of these cities of refuge, what happens? Look with me at verses four to six. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. 
and he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house, to the city from which he fled. The Bible tells us when the person gets to the gate of one of these cities of refuge, he is to present his case to the elders of the city who would form the ancient court of law and make a provisional decision to grant him asylum and protection until a trial could be held in the presence of the entire assembly. If acquitted of premeditated murder because it was an accidental murder, then the person would live in the city of refuge because the other family would presumably still be very angry looking out for blood revenge. Look at verse 5. It tells us that the city would not turn over the person to the avenger of blood and would protect him as long as he remained in that city. He would have to stay in that city until the high priest of that time died, and then he was free to return back home, although it could be for many years. The death of the high priest probably served as the statute of limitations by which the victim's family could exact revenge, thus ending the fugitive's exile in this city of refuge. God sets up these cities of refuge so that there would be hope for justice, both for the one who committed the accidental murder and for the family of the victim whose loved one was killed. In the assessment of judgment, there was both an initial assessment and then a trial headed by the elders and the entire judicial assembly. So there was a two-tiered trial to ensure that mistakes would be minimized and there was no rush to judgment. And that is really all anyone wants, justice to be done. Even though the murder was an accident, a precious life was lost, and therefore there must be some judicial remedy for this. For the person who committed the offense, there is a temporary loss of freedom, having to be confined in that city of refuge. But for the person who committed the mistake, it was a judgment not without hope, as the statute of limitation to prosecute the accidental killing would only last until the death of the high priest. This was really the best setup one can hope for without having a, a tit-for-tat retaliation spiral out of control and last for generations and have the conflict expand to other families. From this provision, you can see the heart of God as He deals with people. You see, we can find refuge in God's protective hands because number two, in Him is a place of hope for people looking for justice. A place of hope for people looking for justice. When we talk about God's protection, it's not simply about our physical well-being. It's also to allow our souls to find refuge and peace, knowing that God will bring justice to the injustices of our lives in this life or in the next. In life, there are times we are mistreated and misunderstood. When we feel that the system is against us, where no one is listening to us or no one will believe us. And it is quite disheartening and discouraging. We do not find settlement of heart when we feel this way. Perhaps we realize we don't have the money, the influence, nor the resources to get justice that we so desire. But as in the example of God establishing these cities of refuge to provide hope for people looking for justice, we are reminded that in the Lord, 
there will come to a time, because it is the heart of God, when true and righteous justice will prevail, when the omniscient judge, God Himself, is judging each one of us. In his book, Your Father Loves You, James Packer writes this, Why do men shy away from the thought of God as a judge? Why do they feel unworthy of Him? The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is His perfection in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Would a God who put no distinction between the beast of history, the Hitlers and Stalins, if we dare use names, versus His own saints be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God, not a perfection. And not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that He has committed Himself to judge the world. It is clear that the reality of divine judgment must have a direct effect in our view of life. If we know that Retributive judgment faces us at the end of the road. We will not live as otherwise we would. But it must be emphasized that the doctrine of divine judgment, and particularly of the final judgment, is not to be thought of primarily as a boogeyman with which to frighten man into an outward form of conventional righteousness. It has its frightening implications for godless men, it is true. But its main trust is as a revelation of the moral character of God and an imparting of moral significance to human life. What Packer is saying is that God's divine judgment is not something that should make us afraid, but it reveals the goodness of God's heart and gives our souls rest knowing that all will be made right by Him, if not in this life, then definitely in the next. Look at me at verses 7 to 9. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjah Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness of the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed the person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hands of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. In verses 7 to 9, the six cities of refuge were assigned three on the western side of the river Jordan, and three on the eastern side, so that the people did not have to travel very far to get to them. Also, notice in verse 9, that it was not only meant for the Israelites, but also for the non-Israelites who dwelt among them in the land. These places were truly places of refuge, as they were equally accessible for all people. You know, God made these cities of refuge, places where there was full access for anyone who wanted to come, as seen by how strategically and conveniently they were located in the promised land. The cities of refuge was for all 
who availed of it. From the way God sets up these cities, you can see a glimpse into the heart of God who wants to make it accessible for all who want to come to be able to do so. You see, we can find refuge in God's protective hand because number three, in Him is a place of access for all people who want to come. A place of access for all people who want to come. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of mankind, to bring reconciliation between God and man. He made available the gift of salvation for all who will receive it through faith in Him. He invites all of us to Himself and says, whoever, whosoever believes in Me shall have eternal life. The accessibility of refuge for all who desire it really should bring rest to your soul. In this current surge of COVID-19 cases, the hospitals are at their breaking point. Hospitals have had to turn away patients at the height of this surge. One person I know who needed to be admitted with a severe case of the virus was turned away by four hospitals. Some had to be admitted and intubated in hospitals 100 kilometers away. And so there is a real fear that if I were to catch the COVID virus and my severe case required hospitalization, what would I do if I'm unable to be admitted because there are simply no spaces available in the hospitals? It is very unsettling when you want access, but that access is unavailable. And that's why in God's protective hands, we have true rest for our re souls because God is always available when we need Him. He's never too preoccupied when we need Him. He's never too busy with His hands full managing the affairs of the universe to give us full attention when we simply say in our prayers, Dear Heavenly Father, His attention immediately comes upon us. We don't have to worry. God is always accessible. That's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Underline that in your Bibles. A very present help in trouble. He is there when we need Him. He is accessible. In the same way, the church of Christ, the body of Christ, also needs to emulate the accessibility of these cities of refuge and also the accessibility of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, who welcomes all who need help. It is very easy in times like this for the body of Christ to only think about themselves and not of others. As Christ's representative on earth, our accessibility for all will show the world that Christ is accessible for all. In his book, Deep and Wide, Creating Churches, unchurched people love to attend. Andy Stanley writes, I grew up attending churches designed for church people. No one said it, but the assumption was that church was for church people. The unspoken message to the outside world was, once you start believing and behaving like us, you are welcome to join us. The corollary of being a church for church people was that we had a tendency to be against everything unchurched people were for. We were against just about everything at one time or another, 
Stanley writes, We were against certain genres of music, alcohol, the lottery, the Equal Rights Amendment, gay people, and Democrats seemed like we were always looking for something or someone to boycott or to be against. As strange as all that sounds now, it doesn't seem strange all back then. Funny how time does that. But our dilemma then is a dilemma the church has struggled with throughout its history. Who is the church for? Who gets to be part of the Jesus gatherings? My friends, Jesus came to provide a place of refuge for all who choose to come in a veil of His free gift of salvation and His care for them. Look at verse 9 with me. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the strangers who dwelt among them, that whoever killed the person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Another thing I want to note from verse 9 is that these cities of refuge were places of grace. It was a place where undeserving people found protection and safety. For blood was on their hands, even if it was accidental. And yet it was a place of undeserved favor where they could find refuge. In the same way, this is what God gives us every day. Grace. Blessings we don't deserve. That's why we call it amazing grace. Remember the first stanza to that famous hymn of the same name? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretched a terrible, a wicked sinner like me. It's funny, growing up uh, in Sunday school as an elementary student, when we would sing that song, we would get to the part of that song, A Wretch Like Me, and instead we would sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like you, and we would point to the people we don't like in our Sunday school class. But we really should be pointing to ourselves because we are the undeserving ones. We are the ones who are the wretched ones, all of us. And yet we've been granted the gift of salvation through Jesus and therefore the recipients of this amazing grace. So when your soul is weary and troubled, when you're looking for peace in your heart, where do you run to? Do you run to a world that judges you based on your merits and what you deserve? Or do you run to the Heavenly Father who judges you and I based on His grace, not on what we've done. I certainly would run to the Heavenly Father because I know based on what I've done, I would receive death. I would receive the worst of life because I'm a wretched sinner. But God judges us based on His grace through His Son, Jesus. In the same way that God has set up these cities of refuge, you see that God's heart is to show grace to undeserving people. You see, we can find refuge in God's protective hands because, number four, in Him is a place of grace for undeserving people. A place of grace for undeserving people. The danger of not understanding that God's welcome extends grace to all undeserving people and instead for us to rush to the meritorious affirmation of the world is that then we are defined by our shame. We are defined by our failures and what we deserve. And in our Asian context, shame is a stigma 
that is prevalent in our cultural mindset that really pulls us down, that wearies our soul, that troubles us, because then we worry that we have such guilt and shame to deal with. What will God think of us? What will others think of us? What will we think about ourselves? In Heather Davis Nelson's book, Unashamed, Healing Our Brokenness and Finding Freedom from Shame, she writes, shame, it's a word we do not often use in daily conversation, book groups, or church pulpits. But shame is something we all experience. It's the feeling that we have missed the mark according to our own standard or our perception of someone else's standard for us. Shame keeps us from being honest about our struggles, sins, and less than perfect moments. Fear of shame drives us to perfectionism in all areas of our life so that there would be no imperfection to be noticed and judged. Shame is what we heap on others when they fail us. Shame keeps us holding on to bitterness and refusing to forgive. We are impacted by the shame of sin committed against us. And this drives a wedge in our relationships. Shame can be deeper and darker too. It's what a perpetrator gives to his victim as he violates her. She will carry that shame forever unless she can find a way to bring it into the light of day. To disown it, she needs to name the shame as his. Shame can be the lack of parental affection and attention that leaves a child with the indelible mark of not worthy. Shame arises from past sin that seems to forever haunt you. You know, that sin that you feel like you can't share with anyone. So you stay in hiding, hold up in your lonely bunker of one, never letting anyone get close to see you, to see that part of you. But you don't need to hide. Grace says, welcome. You all don't deserve anything. You are all sinners. And yet, God says, I choose to give you these things. I choose to bless you. And I'm going to give you rest. And I'm going to give you peace and joy and forgiveness and blessings. Just come in a veil of my grace. It is in the loving, protective hands of our Lord where our souls can truly find refuge from the shame of our sins and guilt to find rest and settlement knowing that we are accepted by the One who loves us and gave His life for us on the cross. My friends, won't you find rest in Him today? His grace is extended to you. He simply enjoins you to come. Another special land allocation that Joshua made was to the tribe of Levi because the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. And so their land allocation and inheritance were given to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which is how the land is still divided by 12. And look what happens in Joshua chapter 21. I read from verses 1 to 3. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came near to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to dwell in with their common lands for our livestock. So the children of Israel gave to the Levites from their inheritance 
at the commandment of the Lord, these cities and their common lands. The tribe of Levi approached the leaders of the other tribes and reminded them of the promise that Moses had made to them in Numbers chapter 35. They would be receiving 48 cities and the areas around it, including the pasture land. Six of these 48 cities were the cities of refuge. You see, this priestly tribe of Levi did not receive any part of the land of Canaan as an inheritance because of their special priestly role among the Israelites. They were provided residence and pasture land from the land allocation of the other tribes in lieu of their tribal inheritance. They did not technically own these cities, but simply were allowed to live in them and had fields to pasture their herds. These Levitical cities did not cease to belong to the tribes within which they were located. To also compensate for them not receiving a tribal inheritance, they were to receive tithes from the other Israelites for their support. And of course, these 48 cities. And we read about these 48 cities in verses 4 to 41 in chapter 21. With the 48 cities scattered throughout the promised lands, it has been estimated that no one in Israel lived more than 10 miles from one of these Levitical cities. That means every Israelite had nearby to them a man from the priestly tribe of Levi who was well-versed in the Word of God, who could give them advice and counsel on the many problems of family and work life according to God's Word. You see, the primary responsibility and the solemn and high privilege of the Levites was to instruct Israel in the laws of the Lord, to maintain the knowledge of His Word among the people, so that they would serve as a boundary and a barrier against the idolatry of their Canaanite neighbors. And the way the 48 cities were scattered throughout the land shows the heart of God, that God intended for the Levites to be a part of the daily fabric of the lives of the Israelites. It was the intent that they would serve as a godly influence in all aspects of the Israelites' life. The notion that they live amongst us ingrained into our lives. It is as if the pastor were to live right next to you, next door. You may not want to fight so loudly as for me to hear you quarrel and complain. You may not want to engage in activities that may not please the Lord or glorify Him because the pastor lives next door and perhaps he may see. Or positively, someone can easily come over to talk to the pastor if he needs godly counsel or wants to know clearly what God's Word says about something. The 48 cities of the Levites scattered throughout the promised land was to ensure that God would have a part into the everyday life of the common Israelite, especially as they settled into the promised land. You know, God knew it would be very easy that once they had relative peace, when they had conquered the enemies of their lands and they returned back to normal life, that they may soon forget the Lord unless there was a godly influence to remind them about their need to worship God and to live by His ways. Of course, it wouldn't be a guarantee as we will see in Israel's tumultuous history in the times of the judges and the kings. But they still were there as a godly influence scattered throughout the promised lands. And the people would have to make an effort to intentionally allow God to be a part of their lives. 
It's similar to having online worship available during the pandemic. It's so convenient. The convenience of just getting out of bed and watching a video has made it easier to worship God. But in many ways, it's also made it harder. Because unless you put in the effort to intentionally set aside time and remove all distractions so that you can worship, you won't be learning very much. Anyway, a Levitical town, so close to where each one of them lived, was a reminder that not only was God's presence and His Word to be an active part of the daily life of the Israelite, but that they could turn to the Lord anytime by seeking out one who knew God's Word for counsel. And if it required a change in their life and a restoration from their sinful ways, they could easily find it through what God's Word says. You see, God's heart in making His Word and His counsel through the Levites so accessible and ingrained as part of the daily life of Israel really shows the heart of God that He desires to restore those who walk wayward. You see, we can find refuge in God's protective hands because number five, in Him is a place of restoration for people willing to change. A place of restoration for people willing to change. God provides a safe place for each of us to be restored to a right relationship with Him where we move away and condemn our sinful ways when we are willing to change our ways to live a life of obedience following His Word. God's heart is to save and to restore the sinner and to know that we can indeed change our ways to live a life of purpose, holy and pleasing in His eyes, should bring relief to our souls. It should settle our hearts that we can be restored. Restoration, restoration is a possibility. However far we've walked away from the Lord, He has made it easy for us to return to Him, easy for us to make Him a part of our daily lives. He desires for us to be restored if we are willing to change. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. He is inviting our weary, troubled, tired souls to find rest in Him. And we can do so because in the Lord, we find the place of salvation for people who make mistakes a place of hope for people looking for justice, a place of access for all people who want to come, a place of grace for undeserving people, a place of restoration for people willing to change. Indeed, the safest place in all the world is in the protective hands of our Heavenly Father because it is in Him that our soul finds rest and refuge. In times like this, my friends, may you find rest and refuge for your soul. May you find that His protective hands give you the assurance to live this life, to be able to face the crucibles we're going through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Through how You have set up these cities of refuge and the allocation of these Levitical cities, we see Your heart. We see a heart for people who need help. We see your heart to provide shelter and covering and salvation for those who are running. 
There are many of us who are indeed tired. We don't know where to turn. The situation of our lives, the desperation of our lives are such that we are simply disgruntled and depressed. Father, I pray that through the truths of Scripture, You will remind us that we can run to You. We can find safety and security under the shelter of Your wings. Our tired, weary souls can find refuge in You. So for those of us who need that refuge, may we turn to You. May Your Word bring comfort and edification to those who hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.